Let's start with the chant. Om Bhadram Karne Bhi Shrinuyama Deva Bhadram Pashe Makshabhirya Jatra Sthirai Rangai Stushtu Vagam Sastanu Bhihi Vyashema Deva Hitayadayuhu Swastina Indro Vridhashravaha Swastina Pusha Vishwaveda Swastina Stakshyo Arishtanemi Swastino Brihaspatir Dadhatu Om Shanti 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 Before we get started, a couple of points. Um, I've just... Um, oh, on Friday morning is uh, Sri Ramakrishna's uh, birthday, the puja. So, you know, we have two events for this. One, the puja itself in the morning. Uh, that's on Friday morning. So if you are able to, do join in. I think it's at 8, 8.30. And uh, then we have breakfast afterwards. 8 o'clock? 8 o'clock. It's at 8 o'clock on Friday morning. And the Sunday I will have a special uh, uh, session. Uh, talk about Sri Ramakrishna and flower offerings again. Um, songs, all of that. The second thing is just something I read today. A race to prove the theories of consciousness. It's interesting, of course, immediately caught my eye. I didn't know. There's, there's a news, newspaper report today. Uh, there is um, um, the Templeton, of our, uh, Templeton Foundation. They've given $20 million to verify which theory of consciousness is more promising. So, <laughs> very interesting. We are not in the ra race. <laughs> <laughs> Nowhere near. And I was disappointed to see that the article doesn't even mention David Chalmers' The Hard Problem of Consciousness once. The result is... They've all taken it for granted that it must be something in the brain which is the source of consciousness. So ultimately, they are not really putting it as a philosophical question. Is consciousness a fundamental reality or um, is it, are there two realities, consciousness and material, uh, the material universe or is the material... They've already decided that it's the material universe which is producing consciousness. So decided they never even questioned that. Um, so inevitably, whatever they whatever they find will be wrong. So <laughs> from our point of view, uh, the best the best that one can hope for is all these discussions, a lot of discussion and a lot of papers. Uh, there is what is called the global workspace uh, theories D GWTs. There is the IIT, not the Institute of Technology, the Integrated Information uh, Theory of uh, Tononi, who is here, uh, who very, very promising uh, theory of consciousness. Then there is HOT, the higher order theories. The consciousness is something beyond the processing capacity of the mind. So they are devising experiments to prove which one is more promising, which is a better theory. What could be the outcome? One outcome which I think would be the better outcome is when they will end up deciding none of them really points to, the, points to what consciousness is. It might generate some learning about, hopefully it will generate some learning about what the brain is and what it does. So that, that is a good outcome. The bad outcome is if they discover what makes consciousness. <laughs> what is Bad in the sense that they will come to a something and then they will think that, yes, this is it. 
and that's it. They, they think that we have found consciousness. It, it's, uh, it is guaranteed to be wrong because if you if already thought that consciousness is an object, that's the way they are talking. So they are talking about something else, the activity of the neurons, uh, processing of information. The leading contender, um, who is a little bit closer to what we are talking about, is a scientist called Tononi, um, who has this theory called Integrated Information Theory, something, IIT. I'm not very sure. It's a very complicated thing. Prakyat was telling me about it. So, um, his basic, the, the sound bite, they, they give a little bit exactly what the theory is about. Christoph Koch, whom some of you might remember, we went and so he is one of the leading um, persons in this whole race to prove the leading theory of consciousness. But Tononi's sound bite is consciousness, uh, that experience is consciousness. That when you have an experience, uh, uh, that means uh, for, for there to be consciousness, there must be an experience. I was thinking that's pretty close. You know what Advaitins would say? For there to be experience, there must be consciousness. Consciousness plus an object of consciousness is experience. Notice? Look at our own experience. What are we? Consciousness plus an object of consciousness is experience. Is it not true? There's an object and you see it and you get a conscious experience of I am seeing it. What he's thinking is that the experience generates consciousness. It doesn't. It, but in, in an Advaitic sense, he's pretty close. Why? What happens in an experience? It's like, you know what he's saying from an Advaitic perspective. Light is generated when there is a reflector. That's what he's trying to say. Which is not true. Light exists. And a reflection happens when you bring an, bring an object. There is light here. But when you bring an object here, then it, it is shining in that light. If a person does not understand light, he will think that this, this thing itself is generating light. This reflection itself is generating light. We don't know, we say, no, 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 we know that there is light in this environment and if you bring an object, what happens? Reflection. Reflection is not generating the light. When you say experience generates consciousness, no, no, it's the other way around. Consciousness is there and because of that, if you have an object, you have an experience. Consciousness plus an object. A, a form, visual experience. A sound, auditory experience. A thought or a memory, a mental, a purely mental experience. Right? In fact, Advaita Vedanta, Objects, what do they do for consciousness? What does consciousness do for an object and what do objects do for consciousness? We'll put it this way, food for thought. Consciousness reveals the object. And the object, you know what I understand, what I mean by object? Anything that you experience. And the object manifests consciousness. You feel aware when there is something to be aware of. But that does not mean awareness was not there earlier. In the deep darkness of space, it's flooded with light. It's only when a satellite or a comet or a, uh, something passes through it that it shines. With the sunlight which is streaming from the sun to the earth, in between it doesn't seem bright because there's nothing to reflect that light. Similarly, in deep sleep, in samadhi, 
it's flooded with consciousness, but there is no object for it to be aware of. That's why you don't think that I saw something in deep sleep, or there is no specific experience in samadhi, that in, deep, in the deepest samadhi, nirvikalpa samadhi, and yet you are completely aware. Mm. Uh, the, the example is this. What does light do for objects, like a book or a hand? Light illumines the object. If the light was not there, you wouldn't be able to see the book. If you hold up a book in a dark room or a hand in a dark room, you won't be able to see it. Light illumines it. That which is covered in darkness is illumined by light. What does this object or a hand, we normally don't ask this question. What do the objects do for light? They manifest it. It's there, but you really don't notice it until an object comes. Similarly, objects, or let's put it this way, experience. Consciousness makes experience possible. And what does experience do? What does experience do? Experience manifests consciousness. Are you with me? Yeah. And this is exactly what, uh, um, where, of course, Tononi is coming from a different angle altogether, but here is where they're missing the point. He's thinking that experience produces consciousness. Okay. Yes. True. Some activity must be there. There is an experience. There must be a physical correlate. There must be a physical correlate. But the physical correlate is not producing the consciousness itself. To experience an object, ultimately the object, see any kind of experience, when you see something, an object, light is, it bounces off the object, enters your visual system through the eyes, transmitted through the brain, through the nervous system into the brain, to optical nerves to the brain. And something must be happening there. And after that it is presented to you as a first person experience. At that point consciousness reveals. But the input must come through this system. So if it does come through the system, something obviously will happen in the brain. But that doesn't mean that the brain is producing consciousness no more than say my hand is producing light. So that's what we would say. Um, but it is not acceptable to... Um, to um, the modern scientific paradigm because it's absolutely limited to the physical uh, uh, the materialist reductionist paradigm that there must be the brain and nervous system and nothing else and nothing else but here but the article also points out that all of the theories are so vague and confusing as to be entirely meaningless it says <laughs> all of these theories but it's interesting how notice it should really give people pause. After all, consciousness is found where? Uh, most obviously in us living beings, in living creatures, in evolved living creatures like us. That's what, at least we feel conscious. We, are, we find consciousness in ourselves. Tell me one other feature of this living human body which is so confusing to modern science. Everything else about this living body, you have either understood to a great depth, scientists, biologists, doctors, or at least we have got pretty good theories, pretty good idea about what it is, except consciousness. Why would it be so? People understand life to a great extent. 
you understand um, uh, digestion, you understand uh, um, uh, all the processes of metabolism, um, the, the hormonal system, you understand electrical activity in the tiniest electrical activity in the brains, all of these things are pretty well understood. There might be mysteries about it, but even there, doctors, biologists have a pretty good idea, endocrinologists, uh, neuroscientists, they have a pretty good idea of what's going on. So they have, uh, they have avenues of inquiry. There is no deep problem about it. There is no great confusion about it. More research, more time will reveal many more things. That's all. Nobody sees that it's a real great debate, except for consciousness. Why would it be so strange? Why is it so strange? Yeah, yeah, I mean, true, but, but from, from a, if you take a materialist perspective, reductionist perspective, it shouldn't be strange. It should be one more phenomenon. Yes? If not knowing, you never can know. That's the problem. But people think that that's what, the, what scientists are saying that they can know. The scientists are saying that they can know. Scientists are saying that they can know, right? So, you are saying it from a, <laughs> a Vedantic perspective. Yeah. No, but it doesn't give them pause. I mean, that uh, why is it so strange? The closest they come to discussing the hard problem of consciousness is one scientist is saying that, uh, one of the leading scientists, he says that there is a theory called panpsychism that uh, its consciousness is ubiquitous, spread all over. He says, no, no, consciousness is not like a thin layer of jam which is spread over the universe. Clearly, it occurs in units. Everywhere there's one unit of consciousness, one unit, one unit there. And therefore, um, um, panpsychism cannot cannot describe how consciousness has got separate units, uh, so it's dismissed. They've got the whole thing, you know, the cart before the horse. It's not that consciousness, according to Vedanta, it's not that consciousness is spread like jam over toast. Consciousness is spread over the universe. Rather, the universe appears in consciousness. And the answer is, and, the, and, and it's, if you simply look at our experience, that should be the starting point. Our experience should be the starting point. I'm not saying the Upanishad should be the starting point. Our experience should be the starting point. Where do you experience um, the universe? In your awareness. Yes. Uh, you're going kind of fast for me. So, uh, well, I haven't started. <laughs> this discussion has nothing to do with what we had. I mean, it has all, everything to do, but it's just an aside. Yes, go on. I would, Vedanta would say, here is in consciousness. Consciousness is always here. No, here is in consciousness. <laughs> Not consciousness is here. <laughs> well, anyway, go ahead. P put your question. So when you see a book, yeah. it's because consciousness is shining on the book. And that's how you started. You said, like in space, this really kind of woke me up. You said that the sun is always shining in space, but you can't see it because it's not reflected off of anything. If you look at the sun, you can see it. But if you look at just look at the space in between the sun and the earth, it looks dark. Exactly. Yeah. So that kind of blew my mind that I wouldn't see a satellite in the blackness of space if there wasn't a sun, say, behind me that I didn't see mm. shining on it. So consciousness is like the sun in that sense? That's step one. Remember, non-dualism is in two steps. Once you become aware of what consciousness is, now 
here is where the analogy, uh, the, the analogy, the example doesn't apply. In the case of the, the light in space, a satellite being seen in space, the moon, say the moon or the satellite, and the sunlight, they are two different things. There is an object which is illumined by light, and I see it. So that's what's happening. But here, in Advaita, where we are, we are going to go now, if you stop there, the closest Indian philosophy is Sankhya. Uh, it's uh, two realities. There's a physical universe and there is consciousness. Consciousness is shining like light upon a dark universe and giving us experiences. Conscious, first-person experiences. That's Sankhya. Now, that is acceptable. You, one one um, accepts that completely. And then one goes one step further if you're going to come to non-dualism. Because Sankhya is also dualism. Well, in a way, it segues nicely into today's discussion because Gaurapada was discussing that. He was attacking the dualists. The dualists stop at that. You are consciousness. Immortal, unchanging consciousness. Channeled through a physical body-mind, you experience a world. And the physical body-mind is a part of a material universe. That's, Sankhya stops there. The Sankhya philosophy stops there. But Advaita asks a further question. What is the relationship, if any, between consciousness and the external uni and the universe? Are they really two separate entities? We have discussed this earlier, but let me pose a simple question. When are you justified in saying two things are separate, independent? When you can? You can experience them separately. The minimum thing should be, each one should be experienceable, independent of the other. Is this head part of the body? Yes. Until you cut it off, you can't experience the head and the body separately. But is the cap part of this body? No, because though you are experiencing it together, now you see you can experience the cap apart from the body and the body apart from the cap and you can say that the two things are separate entities. Now, how will you apply this criterion to the universe and consciousness? See, the answer is in the question. It's a trick question. How can you experience the universe and consciousness apart from each other? You cannot. You can't. Because the very word experience includes consciousness. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't exist in the first place. That's ne next. But the very word experience includes consciousness. What is experience? Define it. Consciousness plus object is equal to experience. True or not? Hmm. You can just put it. That's a very good equation to think about. We should send it to Tononi. What's the proof that the equation is right? Your own, your own experience, all the time. You're, you're validating it in throughout our, your life. Consciousness, the big C, plus object is equal to experience. Consciousness plus object is experience. How does this work? Consciousness plus a form, I see, like this, I see. Consciousness plus a sound, I hear. You just heard. Consciousness plus a fragrance, I smell it. Consciousness plus a cookie, I taste. Consciousness plus a sensation, it hurts. I have an experience of hurt. Consciousness plus 
you know, remembrance, remembering something, a memory. I remember. So I see, I hear, I smell, I taste, I touch. These are what are called experiences. I think, I understand, I remember. These are what are called experiences. And these experiences consist of two things. You the consciousness plus an objective element, an object of consciousness, that which appears to you. Just as anything that you, example, anything that you see, a pen is not just a pen, it's pen plus light. A hand, you're not just seeing a hand, it's hand plus light which you are seeing now. Similarly, every experience is an object plus consciousness. The consciousness is you and the object comes up before you. Now the question is, what is the relationship between the consciousness and the object? Sankhya says, science says, um, I, I have given this chart earlier, some time ago. The object generates the consciousness. By what I mean is the objective universe somehow generates consciousness and a part of the objective universe, like us, we become aware of the objective universe. The universe itself becomes aware of itself through human beings and other conscious beings. Traditional religion, hold the questions, traditional religion says consciousness generates the universe. How does it say that? God. In any religion, God is always a conscious being. Not an, nobody has talked about an unconscious, uh, a, a Freudian unconscious God. No, in every religion, God must be a conscious being. And God is the creator in theistic religion. So God has created the universe, material universe is created by um, consciousness. Here I mean consciousness, God consciousness, whatever. So this is another theory. A third theory is consciousness and material universe are both real and they are parallel. They interact. That is Sankhya. And that is what today panpsychism might say. David Chalmers and others are pushing that. None of these are Advaita. What does Advaita say? Consciousness alone is real. And within it, it's aware of a universe. The universe is nothing other than the consciousness itself appearing within itself. It has no reality apart from the consciousness. That's what Gaudapada is trying to prove here. This is non-dualism. Why non-dualism? Because the universe is not a second reality apart from consciousness, though it appears to be second. Notice, nobody can deny that we experience um, plurality, duality. The dualists say we experience duality here. The non-dualist also has to admit that we experience duality. But is this duality or plurality, many entities, is this a real thing which you are experiencing or the plurality is an appearance and non-duality is the reality. That's what Advaita um, Gaurapada is trying to prove. That non-duality is the reality and plurality or duality is an appearance. So I've given four theories of, of consciousness. Material universe, object produces consciousness, that's science. Consciousness produces its objects. That's um, uh, religion, theistic religion. God produces the universe. Consciousness and um, uh, object are parallel realities. Sankhya, yoga, some form of Buddhism. Uh, they're parallel realities. And consciousness alone is the reality. There's a non-dualism. Advaita Vedanta, um, in a broader sense, 
कश्मीर शैविज्म विशिष्ट अद्वैत माध्यमिक बुद्धिज्म योगाचार और फोर और फाइव नॉन डुअल ट्रेडिशंस इन इंडिया बट स्ट्रिक्टली स्पीकिंग अद्वैत वेदांत हेलो स्ट्रिक्टली स्पीकिंग राइट लेट्स स्टार्ट टूडे नो क्वेश्चन नाउ होल्ड ऑन या होल्ड ऑन टू द क्वेश्चन वील सी लेटर डोंट वरी दिस विल दिस हैज अ सेगवे वट वी आर गोइंग टू डिस्कस एक्चुअली वेरी इंटरेस्टिंगली इज अबाउट दिस टॉपिक वट वॉज गोइंग ऑन वी आर ऑन द थर्ड चैप्टर ऑफ the mandukya karika and we were on verse 17 18 19 we're done we were on verse 20 today right yes. what was going on gaurapada is trying to prove non duality advaita through reasoning experience and also quotations from the upanishads now in these verses what's going on right now he is going on the offensive not just trying to establish non duality but attacking duality so he is pointing out certain things what has he pointed out so far uh in the 17th verse so siddhanta vyavasthasu dvaitino nishchita dridam parasparam viruddhyante tairayam na viruddhyate in dualism the problem is fanaticism there is what is called raga dvesha likes and dislikes dualism means um, here he is talking about by dualism he means the dualistic religion specifically is talking about the ancient uh, indian schools nyaya vaisheshika uh, sankhya yoga purva mimamsa they were dualistic approaches but it equally applies to uh, other uh, dualistic approaches too um, the polytheistic religions or the the abrahamic religions like judaism christianity islam zoroastrianism all of them they are all dualistic religions what happens notice that there is an enormous variety of views and they are they are mutually incompatible if shiva we had shivaratri if shiva the that uh, god with the moon on the forehead sitting in the in the kailasha if that is god literally that's the form of god then vishnu on his uh, cosmic serpent in the uh, vast uh, sea uh, then that cannot be both cannot be true at the same time is god with form and is it a male form if that is true then it cannot have a female form so each approach is contradicting the other and the, it develops a raga dvesha raga dvesha means attachment for one's point of view or one's religion one's culture and a, and a distaste or an aversion to other and modern neuroscience has also proved it because uh, we have what is called um, a very strong tribal instinct in in group and out group us versus them doesn't matter wherever you are wherever you are born into you're born into um, the, the staunchest uh, um, muslim in in uh, say saudi arabia if that was that person was born in um, say in in some uh, household in say midwest america or something and in a very staunch evangelical household would be would become an equally staunch evangelical evangelical christian so depending on our culture our background this is this the accident of birth we we grow into a particular culture and religion and because of our our basic wiring we have a strong us versus them 
So it becomes whatever it is, it becomes this is right, this is mine, I will defend it and all the resources, my emotions, my intellect, my everything is devoted to that pursuit. To prove this is right and the other is wrong, somehow. This is better, the other is worse. Or very exclusive, this alone is right, the other is totally wrong. And either in the more ancient forms of Hinduism, Zoroastrianism, Judaism, the old religions, we are right and the other is just excluded. In the newer religions, um, like Christianity, Islam, um, we are right, other is wrong and other is not excluded. Other should be included. Included means not as they are, they must be transformed into as we are. So, um, Christianity, Islam, they claim to be universal. They are universal only in one sense. Unlike the older religions like Judaism or uh, the older forms of Zoroastrian, uh, Zoroastrianism, old Hinduism, there is no exclusion there. Rather, it's open. You can and you should become a Muslim or a Christian. The Jew does not say that you can or should become a Jew. No. Stay away. <laughs> the, the ancient Hindu says exactly the same thing. The Brahmins. He says, oh, I really like this, your religion. I want to become a Brahmin too. Of course not. There's no question. And don't you dare come near me. <laughs> That's the exclusiveness of the older religions. The newer religion is, of course you must become a, Jew, um, a Muslim or a Christian. You better become a Muslim or a Christian. Otherwise, you're going to burn in hell afterwards. And in this world also, I'm going to cut off your head if you don't become. <laughs> this is the result of dualism. Notice the tragedy of it. They are all religions of love. A, du a dualistic religion has to be a religion of love. Why? Because it's religion, God exists and I exist and there's a separation. We are not the same, there's a separation, vast separation. Then what could be the relationship between man and God, the individual being and God? Inevitably it has to be one of love, surrender, faith, devotion. What else could it be? So these religions of love within quote are the sources of hatred. See how soon a religion, and they are genuinely, they, they, they preach love and um, uh, inclusion and all of that. Uh, faith, devotion, and yet when it comes to the other, if the other is not accepting you, immediately see how that love turns into hatred. Notice the, um, that all the fanaticism in the world is from dualistic religions. Notice that all the violence in the, in the, which is inspired by religion, of course for political ends and whatever, but if it's inspired by religion, then it's from a dualistic religion. Whether it is um, Islam or Christianity or some, um, whatever, it, it is from there. And it's not surprising. That which is based on emotion, immediately love can easily turn into hatred. So, Gaudapada points out, Parasparam Virudhyante, they clash with each other. But we have no conflict with any of them. We means the non-dualist, has no conflict with any of them. Why? Why, then, why does the non-dualist have no conflict? Uh, I remarked last time that um, politics is possible in the personal. I'm quoting, somebody, somebody told me, <laughs> very nice. Politics is possi uh, possible in the personal. There can be no politics in the impersonal. Can you, ha you can have a, a Christian religion, Hindu religion and a, a Muslim religion, but can you have Christian science, Hindu science and Muslim science? You can't. That's silly. 
But why, why is it silly? Because science is impersonal. And these philosophies, Advaita Vedanta, for example, impersonal. It, do you have to be a Hindu to be a non-dualist? No. It makes no difference. You don't even have to believe in God. So it's possible that without believing in God also you can be a non-dualist. You can be, an, in one sense, you can be an atheist and a non-dualist too. So a Buddhist can be an atheist or an agnostic and be a non-dualist also. So we have no conflict. But how do they manage this no conflict trick? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. We'll come to it. The way they manage it is that we have in, no, in non-dualism that there is doctrine of two truths. The ultimate reality is the non-dual reality, Brahman alone. And it appears in this world as God, world and individual. So in the world of appearance, there's duality. And what? And none of these dualities, and dualities are multiple, none of these dualities have any conflict with the background non-duality. Why are there multiple dualities? Why are there multiple dualities? Do you remember, philosophically speaking, in any kind of knowledge, there must be a knower, source of knowledge, and the knowable. Do you remember the Triputi? Pramata, Pramana, Prameya, knower, source of knowledge, and knowable. And depending on the middle term, the source of knowledge, the knower will get different kinds of knowledge. If I see, I'll get one kind of knowledge about this room. If you close your eyes and hear, you will get another kind of knowledge about this space. You will hear only sounds. I will see only uh, sights. And if you try to say that I am talking about reality, reality consists of um, multiple colors and shapes and sizes. You will say, no, no, reality consists of various sounds. Who is right? <laughs> Both of us. We are seeing different for aspects of reality. Why? Because we are using different sources of knowledge. Pramana is different. Now, how, do you apply, how does this apply to our present problem? Because if my pramana, source of knowledge about the reality is the Quran and yours is the Bible and his is the Gita or, or um, the Zendavesta or something and each describes the dualistic framework in a different way, there will be bound to be difference. They cannot be reconciled. But what does non-dualism say? Non-dualism says the knower, the knowable, and the source of knowledge, all of them appear in one Brahman. So all the theories about the reality which you have, they all are acceptable. They are all acceptable at that level of reality. That level of reality means Vyavaharika, transactional reality. At transactional reality, the Vyavaharika world, where we are sitting, at this, at this world, um, you can have multiple theories, but from the fun and they are all clashing with each other. But from the underlying Paramarthika, that means the absolute reality that is Brahman, from that point of view, they are all equally true. Which is another way of saying Advaitin will say they are all equally false, <laughs> which is not a kind thing to say. But we understand in what sense. But Advaitin is not actually denying them. They say that all of that will work. Does religion have a role to play in non-dual realization? Yes. If you are a devout person, if you have devotion to God, um, materialism is less, mind is purer, conduct is moral. Is that, that is much, a much more suitable state for non-dual realization than a person who is engrossed in the senses and for whom this reality is the only reality. 
So therefore, religion helps in non-dual reality. If you are a worshipper of Vishnu or Shiva or Kali, or, all of that is useful for uh, the ultimate non-dual realization. And today you can extend it, a non-dualist can easily extend it to, if you are a worshipper of Allah or Jehovah or the Father in heaven, very good. All of them take you towards, uh, will be, are, are very good, they are very useful. But if you do not have that a non-dual basis, if you just stay with that at, the, at, the level, at this level, then they are all clashing with each other. I hope that part is clear. The next verse said, this is possible only for the, do you remember? It says only for the non-dualist it's possible. For the dualist it is not possible. Because for the dualist, this world is dualistic and the ultimate reality is also dualistic. There is no difference between two levels of truth. For the non-dualistic, this world of dualism which we experience is called Vavaharika, transactional reality, and it's accepted as such. But underlying it is a deeper or, or a higher state of um, non-dualism. In, in consciousness studies, they would call it a hot, higher order theory. So there is a, 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 a deeper level of non-dualism. From that point of view, they are all equally true. They are equally applicable. So for the non-dualist, Paramarthika, the absolute reality is non-dual and Vavaharika, all dualistic theories are acceptable. But the dualist cannot say this. The dualist cannot say this. Because for the dualist, this is also dualistic and whatever heaven, the Vaikuntha, the abode of Vishnu or Krishna or Christ, that's also dualistic. There's, there's also a difference there. Difference is maintained there. So there is no possibility of reconciliation. At least we can give a place for a dualistic theory, logically speaking, philosophically speaking. The dualistic approaches cannot give us a place. That's why you find the dualistic schools of uh, India, um, the Vaishnav, various Vaishnava schools down to this, uh, this day, they have two kinds of enemies. Each dualistic school has two kinds of enemies or rivals. One is the other dualistic schools. We'll say, no, no, Vishnu is superior to Shiva and so on. Or Shiva is superior to Vishnu and so on. And there's another kind of enemy, the non-dualist. So non-dualists are the worst of the worst. <laughs> from a dualistic perspective. <laughs> they are called, we, are, we are called Mayavadi. That means the, the teachers of Maya or illusion. And, uh, and all the followers are warned to stay away from us. We, we apparently spoil everybody. Socrates was called a spoiler of the youth, a corrupter of the youth, why he was forced to take... Yes. That's because we don't believe anything the dualists say, basically. We don't believe about that. No, it's just their, the opposite. duality, we don't believe it. No, we, we do. We uh, do it, it's the other way around. You but see... They don't think we believe it. Uh, they, feel, they think, they feel deeply threatened. You see, whatever they say, as I was saying until now, whatever they say, we say it's true at the transactional level. God exists. Okay. Is it true or not? We say yes. Within brackets, ultimately no. <laughs> but, but at this level, yes. Because at this level, if you are walking and talking around and driving and going to uh, have a cup of coffee, all dualistic activities, why can't you worship God? What, what has poor God done? If you can go out and uh, have dinner in a restaurant, why can't you go out to church or temple? Of course, you can. 
So at that level, the, the Advaitin is not being covertly supercilious or something. At this level, it's perfectly alright. And the Advaitin makes a further point. This is the only level that you are talking about. You dualists are talking about only this level. The other level, the, the um, Paramarthika, the absolute level, is something that we are introducing to the conversation. You have never talked about it. So whatever level you are talking about, a lawyer would love this distinction. Whatever level you are talking about, the Advaitin is comfortable with it. And what we are talking about, you are not talking about it. You don't have a theory of, of, the, of the Paramarthika level. So why are you against us? But they are against us because it, it, it makes them flounder about They don't know how to respond to that. If you say, is Shiva superior or Vishnu superior? Each side has arguments, theological arguments. But if you say both are appearances of a deeper underlying reality, no, 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 no. Which, which I am, by the way. <laughs> that is too much. One is, the reason why it terrifies them, it seems that the world, you're saying that this world which is very dear to them, it's, it's falsified. You're saying this God, no, we're not falsifying God, we're saying there's a higher reality beyond God. And the worst sin of all, you're saying I and God are one reality. That's the worst blasphemy. But not at, we are not saying at this level the little wave is equal to the tsunami wave. No. We are not saying that the wave is equal to the ocean. No. We are saying as water, both wave and ocean are nothing other than water. That's what we are saying. Now, let us go ahead. Yes. Um, can a non-dualist be enlightened? Uh, sorry, a dualist be enlightened? Dualist. Uh, the strict non-dualist would say only the non-dualist can be enlightened. <laughs> Can a dualist be enlightened? Of course. What does enlightenment look like? like? What is he enlightened about? <laughs> no, what, the, what is the dualist enlightened about? Yeah. Well, ultimately, if the dualist becomes enlightened, we would realize that the non-dual reality is the truth. That would be enlightenment. <laughs> and, and the thing is, the, no, the positive thing is, the, the dualistic beliefs that the dualist held earlier, the non-dualist would say that they are all helpful. They brought him to the realization that ultimately I and God are one. How it works is, step one is God exists. You move from agnosticism or atheism to theism. And depending upon your culture, God could be Father in Heaven or Shiva as we had, Shivaratri. And then you progress further. You have an Ishta Devata, chosen form. I'm talking in a Vedantic perspective. Chosen form of God. Since all dualistic forms of God are true, you can take any form. It's not there are many gods. It's that one god, but multiple forms and names. You take the one god, say, um, I'm saying how it works in India, in, in Vedanta. You take, say, your guru teaches you about Shiva, the form of Shiva sitting in meditation and, and gives you a mantra, Om Namah Shivaya, suppose. Then you're supposed to visualize and meditate and repeat the mantra and do all the things a devout Shaivite is supposed to do. Go to the temple, observe Shivaratri, maybe go on pilgrimage, things like that. So there's a whole, it's like a whole religion. It is a whole religion itself. As we progress in this path, what happens is the devout Shaivite realizes, my Shiva, whom I found in the Shiva temple and in my heart I find, I find it's the same Shiva in everybody. I find it's the same Shiva in all beings. That's the next step. Even that is not non-dualism. Then one more step forward. All forms of God, all forms of religion are not, nothing other than Shiva. 
and then finally it becomes Shiva alone is the only reality. The material world, all beings, different forms of divinities, all of them are manifestations in Shiva or appearances in Shiva. Shiva alone is the reality. I am non-different from Shiva. Then you can honestly say, Chidananda Rupaha Shivoham Shivoham. That is non-duality. Oh, I'm coming. Yes. Um, two answers here. One, strictly speaking, technically speaking, if you ask Gaudapada, no. You have to come to the Wednesday class. <laughs> <laughs> but, practically speaking, if you look at the history of religions and the history of spiritual seekers all over the world, and if you take them at their word, whether it's a Shaivite or a Shakta or worship of the Divine Mother, or a Vaishnava, or a Christian, or a Muslim, there are records of non-dual realizations across religions. So, it really doesn't have to be through this particular way, that in only in the Wednesday class in Manhattan, you have to, and then only you get enlightened. No. A spiritual seeker comes to this realization, they have come to this realization, across religions, across civilizations, across time. And this would, this would be right. Why would it have to be so narrow that you have to come through it only through this expression? In fact, one of the great disciples of Shankaracharya, Sureshwaracharya, he makes a comment, I think in his great classic, Naishkarmya Siddhi, probably, I'm not, I don't remember. I forget the original Sanskrit, but the meaning is this. Therefore, the great conclusion is, through whatever means one comes to this non-dual realization, that should be accepted as true and good. It doesn't have to be this kind of teaching. It could be some other kind of teaching. It could be a spontaneous awakening, like Ramana Maharshi or somebody. It could be through Buddhism, a non-theistic system. It could be through Christian mysticism, like Meister Eckhart and many others. It could be through Sufi mysticism. How, who am I to say that's not, because they didn't turn up for a Vedanta class, that's not true. No, they've actually experienced what we are talking about. All right. Yes, I think this answer to fit my question. My question Good. would like to, no, this, my question would touch everything, conscious, your consciousness, and object, hmm. and equal experience. Ramanu, the mathematician, he made a lot of equation. He used to worship God. When they asked, do you know the answer? He said, I don't know. But his equation, lots of equation already deserved. But still they are trying to find out. In this case, our answer, he used to worship God, dualism. Also, he had pure consciousness so strong, he created the theory nobody could understand. But somehow this was a, in that case, what you should do? The same thing that pure consciousness, because of his pure consciousness, we don't know the answer. Because he was dualist. He used to worship Narayan and everything all the time, day and night. And he created so many things. Mathematical world still uh, couldn't find the answer. And he himself said, I don't know. But some are already answered. In that case, what would be our answer? Conscious mind, experience. He might have experienced in his past life. We don't know. Our answer is come back to the text itself. All right. Let's go on. At this point also, if you say, why does this pluralistic universe appear in a non-dualist awareness? In Brahman, which is non-dual, 
Why does the pluralistic universe appear at all? The 19th verse said, Mayaya Bhidyate Hetat. So here Advaitin will bring in Maya. And what is Maya? Don't ask now. But you can ask one, one week hence. I have a talk on Maya coming up. That's probably the most difficult topic I've ever taken up in my life. <laughs> so I'm going to take up that topic um, on, um, not this Sunday, but the Sunday after that. Now let us go ahead, 20th verse. Ajatasyaiva bhavasya, ajatasyaiva bhavasya, jatim ichanti vadinaha, jatim ichanti vadinaha, ajato hyamrito bhavo, ajato hyamrito bhavo, matyatam kathameshyati, matyatam kathameshyati. So, Gaurapada here continues his attack on the dualists. He says, of the bhava, bhava here means the Turiya, Brahman, existence, consciousness, bliss, the one consciousness behind waking, dreaming and deep sleep in the paradigm of the Mandukya, Turiya, that bhava, which is ajata, which is uncreated, which is never born. Remember, Gaurapada's whole approach in this chapter towards non-duality is, Brahman is neither a cause nor an effect. God is a cause. The world is an effect. Brahman is neither cause nor effect. Because God, Brahman has not really created a world. See, about this world, you can say only two things. If the non-dual reality is, is the ultimate reality, and we have a dualistic experience of a world, you can ask the question, how did this many come from the one? How did this dualistic universe come from the non-dual? Only two answers are possible. Really, that non-dual reality produced a dualistic world. In that case, that non-dual reality is the cause and the world is an effect. That's one option. The other option is, it didn't really produce, it's an apparent manifestation. It appears. Just as a reflection appears in a pool, a movie is seen on a screen, water appears in a mirage, a snake appears in the rope, not really produced. So, apparent creation and real creation. These are the two options. And the, not, the dualist says, real creation. God created the universe. God is the cause, universe is the effect. And the non-dualist says, apparent creation. Apparent creation means, Brahman alone exists unchanged completely. Or in Gaudapada's words, ajaha, unborn. It does not create a universe. So Brahman alone exists. And the individual beings and uh, this physical universe are appearances in Brahman. Brahman alone appears as the individual, you or I or him or her, and the world which we experience. And none of it is actually physically, uh, none of it is really created. So Brahman is not really a cause and is not really an effect. Brahman is beyond cause and effect. That is called ajaha, uncreated, unborn. And he says, the dualists say, the dualistic theories all say, the immortal, Unborn, Brahman, Ajataha, uh, I say, Brahman is Jati Michanti. They, they want that it should, it is created, universe is born or Brahman becomes a cause and the universe is an effect. That we individual beings, Jivas, are actually produced from Brahman. It's like saying, no, 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 the rope actually created a snake. The rope is looking at, it looks like a snake. 
it, instead of saying it looks like no, actually there was a rope and it's now become a snake. That's not true. Advaitin says it's not that at one time we were all Brahman, immortal, and now we have become individual beings, jivas, and with a lot of spiritual practice and plenty of Vedanta classes, we'll all become the immortal Brahman again. We think we may smile at it now, but that's the majority idea of religion in the in the world today. The great themes in the religions of the world, the fall of man, it's there in every religion of the world. That there was a perfect state and from that we have come down to an imperfect state and then we must get back to it again. And there's a whole spiritual journey, a cycle which we are going through. There are two ways of looking at it. One is, yes, this is true. There was some kind of perfection, the garden of Eden and paradise or whatever. We have fallen from it. And we are on our journey back. That's why we are, it's so obvious we are suffering and so all un, unfortunate. But there is some hope. There is perfection, heaven, God waiting for us. That's one. The non-dualist perspective is that uh, no. That perfection, that non-duality, that infinite existence, consciousness, bliss is right here. It is what we are misperceiving as this imperfect uh, existence. You are it already. You don't have to seek for liberation. You are liberated. You just have to know that you are liberated. You have to realize it and see it for what it is. So he says, the dualists of the immortal ajatasya bhava, the immortal Brahman, they want that immortal Brahman to be born. Jati michanti vadinaha. He says, ajato hyamrito bhava matyatam katham ishyati. Of the Immortal, unborn, absolute. How can you expect it to become mortal? Who is mortal? Individual beings. So how can that one become this one? The difference is incredible. Jati means birth. But remember the sixfold changes, we talk about it all the time, the traditional Sanskrit is sixfold changes, Shadvikara. Birth and having been born or not existing earlier comes into existence. First is jati, birth. Second is asti, comes into existence. Third is growth, vardhate. Then fourth is viparinamate, changes. Fifth is apakshiyate, deteriorates, ages, sickens. And then sixth is nashyati, dies. And that is true of the bodies. That is true of the individual beings. We see it all the time. Not true of the infinite existence consciousness place. Not true of Turiya. He says, Turiya is you're saying, the, the, the dualist says, that one is born as this individual being. Or this individual being is created from that one. How can the two be the same? Moving on to the next one. Why, cannot be, why is it not possible? Why is it not possible? 21. Nabhavatyam ritam matyam Nabhavatyam ritam matyam Namatyam amritam tatha Namatyam amritam tatha Prakrite ranyatha bhavo Prakrite ranyatha bhavo Nakatan chid bhavishyati Nakatan chid bhavishyati the immortal can never become mortal, nor can the mortal ever become immortal. Why not? Nothing ever changes its intrinsic nature. 
that is it prakriti ranyatha bhava the intrinsic nature of an entity is never changed fire never becomes cold and ice so i'm not saying ice cannot burn but ice can actually burn but <laughs> the fire never becomes cold the, the intrinsic nature of something if it's intrinsically immortal beyond change how can it be born how can it age how can it die and if it is born ages and dies how can it be changeless it is changing if a changeless entity becomes changeful if the immortal turiya is born as a mortal being and it becomes immortal again what prevents it from being born again and becoming a mortal being again so this is what is said you see let's put it this way the whole of this spiritual quest is that we mortal beings we are seeking to overcome death we are seeking immortality that is the quest the mortal being is seeking immortality now there are only two possibilities only two possibilities does a mortal being become immortal what is the goal immortality so does a mortal being become immortal or does the immortal become immortal neither neither can the mortal become immortal cannot why not intrinsic nature cannot be changed mortal means subject to change if we are changeful beings can we become changeless no because if we if we are literal intrinsic nature is changefulness it cannot become changeless and if we are changeless beings already can we become changeless beings it's a ridiculous question you need not become you are already that why would you become anything else you are already that what would you become in both cases uh, answer is no see the the verse it's a simple verse but worth thinking it has tremendous implications for religion and spirituality the immortal never becomes immortal the mortal never becomes immortal intrinsic nature of an entity can never be changed this is the verse when think about it the whole idea of religion is that we are obviously mortal beings now wrong what is obvious need not be correct <laughs> it obviously mortal beings now why i am born i can show you my birth certificate and i'm getting older and one day you will be showing somebody else my birth death certificate so i'm subject to birth and death i'm uh, and religion tells me that there is god and heaven and uh, and a hereafter and i can become i can overcome death the whole human project you know you might say what's the human project all of us we're trying to basically overcome death i mentioned this earlier the denial of death ernst becker a pulitzer prize winning book he says basically our major our fundamental urge is to um is to overcome death we're trying to find a solution for death you might say no that's not mine a philosopher might think about that but my solution is my project is to pay my rent and hold on to my job and pay my insurance and you think about that paying my rent holding on to the job and paying insurance is for what <laughs> for for living exactly every one of our all our attempts whether you're eating a cookie or doing meditation for attaining god realization it's all meant for one thing we just don't bring it to the forefront that's what becker calls denial of death in a bigger question 
the whole project of spirituality in Indian philosophies can be put in this way, how to overcome death. The great uh, verse, which Upanishadic verse, which Swami Vivekananda was fond of reciting here in the West, when he would teach here. Srinvantu uh, Vishwe Amritasya Putraha. Listen ye children of immortal bliss. Notice the words. Immortal bliss. Amrita. Aye dhamani divyani tastu. Even the gods who are in heavens. Because in Hinduism even the heavens are, have, are subject to end. You can come back from those states. They are very high states. You can come back from them. Aye dhamani divyani tastu. Vedaham purusham mahantam. I have realized that infinite being. What kind is it? What, what type of infinite being have you realized? Adityavarnam, blazing forth with light. Light means not this mortal light, but light of consciousness, awareness. Awareness itself, blazing forth with consciousness. Adityavarnam, tamasaf parastat, forever beyond darkness. Darkness means limitation, sorrow, death, suffering. There is something beyond that. And if you realize it, what happens? Tameva viditva ati mrityumeti. By really realizing that, one goes beyond death. Truly, forever. Any other path? Science, technology, entertainment, politics. Nanyafpantha vidyatayana. Nothing else will serve this purpose. Every other human effort is productive of small gains and losses, but with ultimate project, you cannot do it by any other way. And this has been the promise of religion. It's not Vedanta. It's every religion in all history. Ultimately, the core promise is a solution to the problem of death. Even the most primitive uh, tribal belief systems, they all dealt with death and afterlife. <coughs> I also mentioned that recently I was reading this book by a French philosopher, um, Luc Ferry, The History of Thought, History of Western Thought where I was surprised and happy to see, he says, what is the purpose of all these uh, philosophical systems that we have had in the West? Starting, he starts with the Greek thought, then comes to Christianity, then comes to modernity, then comes to postmodernity and stops there. But what's the purpose behind it? And I was so <laughs> happy and interested to see, he says, salvation. What is the way of overcoming death? I was happy because then it makes the two projects the same. And you would expect that. We are all human beings. Ultimately, we are concerned with the same reality. You might say, why, were you expecting something else? Because we have been taught differently. When we were, at, uh, we were learning philosophy, I remember our Western philosophy teacher coming and saying, Western philosophy and Eastern philosophy are different. Eastern philosophy is darshana, seeing the ultimate reality. Darshana literally means seeing. But Western philosophy is thinking, philosophy, a love of wisdom. Sophia is wisdom, philos, philos is love, so love of wisdom. And we also took down notes, yes, so this is different. This is driven into our minds. And the more I read the English language philosophers, and that's what I was limited to, British, American philosophers, it seemed to be so. It's about thinking about, but it's only this French philosopher who revealed to me, he says, this thinking philosophically about issues, that's what's critical thinking. That's how philosophy is defined. He says, nonsense. Critical theory, thinking is required in every subject. Why philosophy alone? Then what is philosophy? And he gives a beautiful answer which makes the two Eastern and Western approaches exactly coincide. He says philosophy is theoria, theory, where the word theory comes from. And theoria, the original Latin meaning, 
um, Theos and Orao, which means I see the ultimate reality. Exact meaning of Darshana. Orao means to see and Thea or Theos means the ultimate reality, the divinities. I see the ultimate realities. It's the literal meaning of Darshana. The meaning of the, the uh, uh, philosophy in both approaches, Eastern and Western, is the same and the goal is also the same, overcoming death. So, in all the tradition, mostly the dualistic religions, remember here the attack is on the dualistic religions. The dualistic religions, they say, this is attainable, immortality is attainable. How? You mortal being, you fallen being, you sinful being, you will attain to a sinless deathless, an immortal state, you'll be raised and made sublime. How? When you go to, uh, when you go to heaven, look at the two words, go, space, when, time, that immortality is separated from you by time and space. There will come a time, it's not now, the millennium or when, after, when you go to heaven, so there will come a time when you, the immortal being, then you will be immortal. There will come a, a place, not this sinful earth, but a pure heaven. And this concept is there in all religions, all dualistic religions, whether uh, Hindu or Christian or Islamic or whatever, uh, Hebrew, uh, Jewish, it's there. What non-dualism says is, it's an impossible project. It's, it's a fool's errand. Why? If you are saying that the mortal will become the immortal in the future, in some other place, impossible. The intrinsic nature of a thing cannot be changed. What will become immortal? The mortal body will become immortal. It will be burned to ashes or it will rot in the grave. Where will it become immortal? What, will the mortal mind become immortal? Whatever does that mean? It's constantly dying, but mean, which means it's constantly changing, a moment to moment. And at the slightest drop of uh, um, blood sugar, it faints. <laughs> what immortality is there for the mind? Then the dualist will say, no, 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 you're putting words into my mouth. We never said the body will become immortal. We never said the mind will become immortal. It's the, the immortal soul in us which will become. Just a minute, you said immortal soul will become immortal? <laughs> Do you see the silliness of that point? If it is immortal, it is immortal. What will it become? If it changes, it becomes non-mortal, it becomes mortal then. Alright, so what are we saying here? Notice, what Advaita is driving towards is, if you are already immortal, then only immortality can be promised to you. If you are really mortal, no immortality can be promised to you. But if you are already immortal, then what remains to be done? Nothing remains to be done. Then, should we all pack up and go? Then the, the 5.30 train? <laughs> no. The problem is still there. Even if we are immortal, we don't feel it. We don't get the benefit from it. We are still suffering as mortal beings. So, Advaita, this um, non-dualism reduces the whole spiritual problem to a problem of knowledge, of realization, not a problem of doing something. We, we are making some vast changes in our understanding of religion. Remember, nothing will be disturbed finally, but we have changed our approach to it. 
We are not overthrowing religion. If you stop now and go out now, religion is gone. You walk out of here an atheist. But no, we shall reconstruct religion again. We are doing it now. What are we doing? We have to realize our immortal nature. That I am this immortal reality, this, this one consciousness beyond the waker, dreamer and deep sleeper, in which the waker, dreamer and deep sleeper experience their particular fields of experience. They come and go. I am the unchanging consciousness. We have to realize this. What is required is knowledge. Our problem is ignorance of this reality. What is required is knowledge of this reality. So, spirituality becomes a path of knowledge. I am now entirely following up Gaudapada. Many of you may be disturbed by this. But don't be disturbed. Everything else will fall in place now. So it becomes a path of knowledge. The Brahma Sutras, the, the aphorisms of a Brahman. Notice the first sutra, Brahma Sutras. Athato Brahma Jigyasa. Hence, therefore, an inquiry into Brahman. Notice what it says. An inquiry. Jigyasa. Jigyasa means... In Sanskrit, Gyatumicha, the desire to know. An inquiry. What does an inquiry produce? Knowledge. Does it do anything? No. It just produces knowledge. All it does is give, give you knowledge. Why an inquiry into Brahman? Hence, therefore, it could have said, hence, therefore, the worship of Brahman. Hence, therefore, the bhakti of Brahman. Hence, therefore, the meditation on Brahman. Hence, therefore, the service of Brahman, karma. Doing good works? No. It says an inquiry into Brahman. Why? Because knowledge alone is the one thing needful. In that beautiful verse, Vedaham Purusham Mahantam, I have known that infinite being. It did not say, I have worshipped that infinite being. I have loved that infinite being. I have meditated upon that infinite being. I have known that infinite being. Also, hidden in this is something interesting. How can knowledge help me? If I know there is an infinite being which is immortal. Okay, you are talking about an immortal Brahman. I know there is an immortal Brahman. I am still mortal. I am going to die in a few days later. I am known good for Brahman. What about me? The promise is knowledge will make me immortal. Which means, the only way by knowing something I become immortal. Knowing something immortal I become immortal is that if that thing is I myself, if I realize that I am immortal, that is what is hidden here. It's the story of the lion cub, which Swami Vivekananda was fond of telling in this country. A little lion cub grows up, uh, I mean, its mother dies and it grows up among the sheep. And as it grows into a big lion, it still eats grass and bleats like the sheep, thinks that it is a lamb. And then another big lion was hunting, catches, thing, is mystified by this huge lion walking in a flock of sheep. And catches hold of it and drags it off and it's scared, it's bleating. Let me go sir, you're scaring me. And this big old lion says, stop bleating. You are not sheep, you are a lion like me. And look at your face in the river and look at my face and look at your face. You're the same and roar like me. And so it takes one, one or two tries but the, the, the sheep lion realizes I'm not a, a lamb, I am a lion. We have, we have lived so long among the... Among the sheep, what is the sheep here? The five senses, matter, a changing body. We think we are that. Body deteriorating. Oh, I'm falling apart. It gets, face gets wrinkles. Good, let it get more wrinkles. 
I have got wrinkles, it's so bad. No, it isn't. The better, the sooner. <laughs> Body is skinny or fat. I am skinny or fat. No, you're not. How can consciousness be skinny or fat? 2% consciousness, like my milk. <laughs> Whole consciousness, skimmed consciousness. No. It's, it's just the body. It's absolutely nothing to do with you. I remember this person I met, uh, an Israeli lady. She said, she knows this monk, a traditional um, non-dualist monk in the, Him in the Himalayas, in Haridwar. So she sometimes calls him for advice. Nowadays you can contact the Himalayan monk over. <laughs> I mean, he of course doesn't live in the mountains. He lives in the city, there in Haridwar. And she was a little mystified. She had a problem. Something was, she was feeling depressed about something. Unhappiness. And she called and he said to her, she told me that, he just said, ignore it. <laughs> it's an important problem. He said, ignore it. The thing is, I understand what he, where he's coming from. He's coming from a strict non-dualist per perspective. From a strict non-dualist perspective, our worst problems are sheer nonsense. <laughs> if you are in a dream and a terrible thing is happening, a person is misbehaving with you and the, the plumbing is leaking and uh, there is a snowstorm coming in, all of that. What would you say to this person who com comes with this list of complaints to you? What would you say to this person? Ignore it. It's a dream. Ignore it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but that's too much to take for a person who doesn't have the learning behind it, the paradigm behind it. How can I ignore it? A real, a series of huge real problems in my life. I'm getting old. My finances are bad. I'm lonely. My health is failing. My insurance doesn't work. Uh, uh, it's all falling apart. The non-dualist would say, the, those, that monk in the Himalaya would say, let it all fall apart. Let everything go get worse and worse and worse. You will realize very soon you are not affected in the least. You're still there afterwards. Yeah. So that doesn't make good sense. Let it not. You have got enough of good sense and it's got you into this position. <laughs> this is the trouble it's got us into. So it's a very radical philosophy. The mortal can never become immortal. We are immortal. You don't have to become immortal. You just have to realize that you are immortal. Our knowledge, our realization. That's what Vedanta is all, Advaita Vedanta, non-dualism is all about. Now, then what about the practices? We don't, don't have to do anything. Here, don't be mistaken. Be careful here. Many people think that, oh, now I know. I'll stop my meditation. I'll stop all the good works that I'm doing, charity. And, but you will not stop eating. You will not stop breathing. <laughs> I remember, this is funny, you know, when I was supposed to come to the United States, I was teaching in the, in the monastery there um, to the novices. I was teaching the novices. So when it was announced that I will go. Sarva Priyananda is posted to Hollywood. So you're going to go to Hollywood. And then the, the Swami in charge of the, um, the school, the monastic school, he said, so the, we are making the plan for the next year. Uh, so should I put your name down as one of the teachers? Because there's still six months for you to go. You have a visa and everything. So should I put your name down or not? And uh, 
and he was scared of asking the secretary general, the general secretary, yes or no, which way. <laughs> he was a nervous kind of man. He was senior Swami. He said, okay, I'll ask. I'll ask. So I went and asked the Swami. I took an appointment and I went and bowed down. He's like really the high of the high. So um, Swami, this is the situation. Um, should I teach? Or, or I asked, do I have to teach? And he said, do you have to eat? <laughs> His answer, he meant it in a very simple sense, not all Vedantic philosophy. He said, if you're going to eat here, you're going to work here. Go. <laughs> and that solves the problem, of course. <laughs> a very short meeting, he says. If you're not contributing, then you get out. The gates are open. <laughs> so that, that was his approach. And that solved all sorts of problems. No philosophy required. <laughs> He's at, all this, I'm giving an explanation. He just said three words. Do you have to eat? <laughs> yeah, you have to eat. Are you going to eat? Um, in Bengali, it's even more uh, sharp. I said to the Swami, Maharaj, Parabo ki? And his answer was, Khabi ki? <laughs> in Hindi, you know, the padana hai, he said, kya khana hai tumko? <laughs> That's right, we don't say that we're going to stop eating, sleeping, no. So if you're not going to stop all of that, why are you going to stop your spiritual activities? How will it help if I'm already immortal? How will it, my meditation and puja and all of that help? It will help in this way. This is the real purpose of all spiritual practices. It removes the obstacles on the path of non-dual enlightenment. It prepares the mind for non-dual enlightenment. We have pushed so much garbage into our, into our psyche that it prevents us from seeing the truth. It purifies the psyche. Here is the meaning of Swami Vivekananda's beautiful teaching, inspired talks. All his best teachings are condensed into that. He says, just a cryptic line. Those are like one paragraph, one line like that. One cryptic line. You need to switch it up. It's a dream, you have to ignore it. <laughs> so, a simple line. He says, Swami Vivekananda says, All we can do is polish the mirror. You just have to polish the mirror. So, all spiritual practices, the point of all spiritual practices is to polish the mirror. What is the mirror? The mirror of the mind in which will flash the realization that I am Brahman. So all spiritual practices are relevant. It will not make you immortal. It will, give you, it will enable you to see that you are already immortal. It will not make you into God. That's why that, that sentence which I like repeating so much. The person never becomes free. You, the person, will never become free. You will become free of the person. What does it mean in these terms? That mortal aspect, the jiva aspect of ourselves, will become free of that. We will realize we were never that. We will never be able to turn that into immortality. The next verse. Okay. Just hold on. Alright, ask the questions. I think she, you also had a question. Yeah, I'll come to you. So, immortality is discussed and it's, it's said that that's the problem of humankind. But don't you think sooner or later science will come up with a solution to death? 
Will science come up with a solution to death? Already the Upanishad says, There is no other way. There is no other way. So you think it's not even possible that... Uh, you can live longer maybe. You can um, preserve this body and then transfer your, uh, yeah. your thoughts into another maybe better body or something like that. Science fiction. But then uh, Hinduism would say that's already happening. You're transferring it from one body to another <laughs> one. Infinitely. You don't have to put all the trouble in. It's already done for you. All the technology is invented by God and you are going through it. The point is to stop that. Vedanta is to stop that from happening. It's happening automatically. Auto payment, they say. No. <laughs> How do you unsubscribe from this divine service? <laughs> Somewhere, sometime... Somewhere, sometimes, we don't recall signing up, but it's done. It's done. Someday, somewhere, you clicked on something and it's done. And every lifetime, you're shunted into a new body. Perfect service. You can't get off the ferry wheel. That's the problem. How do you get, get off the... Yeah, it, 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 was, it was fun at the beginning. Now it, you're getting dizzy and sick of it. But it won't stop. It goes on and on. So, the problem is not how to live on and on. You are living on and on. Vedanta says how to make it stop. <laughs> how to stop. There's a beautiful story. Swami Madhavanandaji. He was the president of our order. He had, he had come here to New York many, many decades ago. He stayed on the East Side Center and Ikilanji was his friend. He had a brain tumor. In those days, we didn't have good hospitals there. So, he had come for an operation here. He was the president of the order. He came, the operation was done and he was recovering. They were physiotherapists and all helping him out in that center. So these beautiful stories are, you can find in the book called uh, Six Lighted Windows, written by an American Swami, Swami Yogeshanandaji. He was a nurse, a male nurse who helped the Swami to recover. So he had written, and he became a monk later on, but he's written his reminiscences, very beautiful. So he says, one day we were all sitting and discussing at that time, the great hot topic for discussion, this was early 60s or late 60s, I think. Hot topic of discussion was the birth control pill. So whether it is good or bad, it should be used or not. The debates have all disappeared now, but at that time it was a debate. People were discussing it hotly. So some of the devotees were sitting and discussing. And they didn't, of course, think the Swami would be interested in such a thing. So is it, some are for, some are against. Um, then the Swami said, from, for he was passing by, he said, Oh, I, I am, I am for, for, for it. Then they were surprised. He said, Oh, Swami, you are, you are interested in this? You are, you are for birth control? He said, Yes, I am against birth and death and rebirth. And <laughs> the whole of <laughs> spirituality, Advaita Vedanta is birth control, basically. <laughs> it stops the entire cycle of birth and death. Basically, this limited existence to experience a little and to be crushed out of existence and to come back again and to be snuffed out again and to come back again. This thing. If you suppose someone does not believe in this huge cosmic cycle of birth and death, just, we just see this one life. Somebody said, that's alright in a Hindu context or an Indian context. But what about an American context? People coming from a Jewish uh, uh, or a Catholic or a Muslim background or an atheist. They don't believe in all this. Alright, the core idea still applies. Overcoming suffering and finding true lasting peace and joy. If you believe in one life also, that's also alright. Overcoming suffering is the point of it all. Overcoming death. By, by this it would mean overcoming that, this fear of this death. 
one uh, prince asked Swami Vivekananda in Europe, that I have everything, what can you teach me? He said, I can teach you how to die. <laughs> die means not to commit suicide. <laughs> it's to how to face death and absolute equanimity and happiness and peace and, and makes no difference to me. No, it was just a comment. What about compassion? The, the Swami in the Himalayas, ignore it. Hmm. Aren't we supposed to show compassion? That's the greatest compassion. That's the greatest compassion. He's not ignoring it. He's asking you to ignore it. The moment he asks you to ignore it, ignore it means the pain, the suffering, the depression. Immediately a gap opens up between you and the pain. You are not defined and limited by the pain. You existed before the pain, you will continue to exist when the pain is not even a memory, it's forgotten forever. Even now there are times when you don't remember or experience the pain. When you, when you dream, when you are in deep sleep, or even when you are awake, there moment to moment, pain is not always there constantly. When you become aware of it, oh, it's so bad. So, one Swami put, and Vedanta says, between the eternal and the non-eternal, the immortal and the mortal, there can be no relationship. A very interesting thing. I, the immortal, seem to have married the mortal. No, there's no relationship. You have deluded yourself. What a great, what a, what a, what a, I will not say a wonderful thing, what a stunning thing to say. Because everything that we know is mortal. People are mortal, they are born and they die. Which means ultimately between you, the immortal soul and these mortal people, there is no relationship. I mean, I am not related to these people. In the deepest sense, you are one with them. In what sense are you one with them? They as the soul, the pure consciousness, Atman. You as the Atman, the pure consciousness, it's one. You are exactly, you and them are, are one. But you have no relation to that body. It has come, you are experiencing it, it will go away. You have no relationship with the person, personality also. That has come, it is changing, it will change and go away also. So the mortal and the immortal have no relationship. It is the greatest blessing. It is the greatest compassion. The whole, of, the whole of Buddha's project, is it not compassion? It starts from compassion. People are suffering. How do we overcome suffering? And Advaita Vedanta gives you the basis for compassion. How, am, how can I be compassionate to others? Because I am one with them. They are nothing other than me. Yes. Again, I will say, it seems to be like that. But Advaita is just the opposite. It is now that we are lonely. As the poet says, you are like an island cut off from everybody else by, by, by the surrounding ocean. What is the only way of getting in touch with a person? No way. Actually, no way. We all live within our own minds, literally speaking. Even the persons you are seeing... Huh? Friend, parents, husband, wife, enemies, lovers, all of them. Actually, if you take a, the fact, the fact is these persons you are experiencing, you are experiencing them in your mind. Person as they are outside, you have no contact with them at all. Do you understand what I am saying? Exactly, literally speaking, a scientist would agree. <laughs> what are you experiencing? A reconstruction by the neurons in the brain which is presented to your mind. 
you are dealing with phantoms of your own imagination. Some data is coming from outside. Science would say, science is very realistic. It says there is a person outside. So light is reflected from that body. It comes into your eyes. The sound of that voice comes into the ears. But all of that is ultimately converted into what? Sound, light, all of them are converted into little electrical impulses in the brain. When it reaches you, what you are hearing is not the original voice of the person. What you are seeing is not the original body of the person. What you are touching is not the hand of the person. When it reaches you, this is pure physiology, no Vedanta involved here. When it reaches you, it is the product of little electrical impulses in your own brain, nothing else. Where are you? Aren't you lonely? You are forever cut off from the universe in, in your own mind. You are like a person living in a virtual reality, seems to be populated with so many people, there is nobody there except you. Let me finish this. Let, let, me, let me finish this. Let me finish this. Whereas, so this is, this is real loneliness. We think we are so happy. We are so, in the midst of so many people. No. You might as well be happy in the presence of your favorite soap, soap opera um, characters in watching a TV show in, with so many people. It's a TV show. There's nobody there. It's like, like that here. Whereas Advaita Vedanta says, you are actually the one consciousness in all beings. You are literally one with everybody. That's why I've seen true non-dualist Vedantins, they're never lonely. They're never lonely. They're comfortable when they're in a crowd of people. They're comfortable when they're left alone. I met this monk high up in the Himalayas who was staying in a little cottage all year round. I had gone in the peak season where there was, it, it was not, there was no snow, it was like pilgrims were coming and there was, it was very beautiful. And those little children would come and play. He had seen their, that monk had seen their parents as little children coming, they would come in the summer and play in the ashram and he, they liked him because he was like very mysterious. He had this hair, you know, have you seen the Lord of the Rings? So Gandalf the, what is the name, Gandalf the magician? White, exactly like that, wizard. So white cloak up to his ankles and uh, next thing. And a beard much longer than Gandalf's beard. It goes up, up to here. And this, um, uh, this, the locks of hair, he had to keep it tied up because they went down below his uh, knees. So, he, he, and not a wig, <laughs> a real thing. And the kids would like, they loved him. They would just stare up at him and he was a tall, powerfully built figure. So they would run around, scamper around, uh, shouting and playing in the ashram. And I said, you're so happy with everybody here coming and playing. But in the winter, when nobody's around, there are a few ascetics left, some in their caves, some in their huts. And the snows are up to your knees. And uh, um, even the food, places where you get food, they have all shut down. You've got only your own store of food to cook. Alone in that icy whiteness all around for six months in a year. What do you do then? His answer was very nice. In Hindi he told me. He said, I am happy now, Swami, and then I am happier. In Hindi he said, he was Punjabi actually, he said, Ab majay mein hu Mahatma ji, aur tab aur bhi majay mein rata hu. <laughs> At that time I am even happier. One Swami told me, who liked me very much, you know, he said, you know, I am so happy to see you. 
But remember, when you are not here, I don't miss you. <laughs> so this is not loneliness, but aloneness with a capital A, you can say. In loneliness is here in Manhattan. <laughs> Strangely enough, in the icy peaks of the Himalayas, there's no loneliness. <laughs> Yeah, that's a blissful, that's a very peaceful state. That one thing goes to another. It reminds me of pleasure, peace, bliss. In Sanskrit, the difference is this. Just worth contemplating. Sukha, Shanti, Ananda, the three. What is Sukha? What is pleasure? Contact of the senses with their objects, with a desired object. To see the thing which you want to see, a movie, a person, a place, that gives you a burst of pleasure. It can actually be measured in, by neuroscientists, the burst of dopamine and everything. Sukha. It's very mysterious. But it gives you a burst of pleasure. It's mysterious because there's one component in the whole thing which is mysterious, which is consciousness. Uh-huh. So it gives you a burst of pleasure. The same thing can be replicated in a machine. It wouldn't get that pleasure. Because consciousness is not there. Because pleasure is an experience. <laughs> so it's a burst of pleasure. Sukha. Your favorite cookie. You put it on your tongue. Whole process will immediately take place. And the taste is presented to you, the consciousness. A burst of pleasure comes. A flash of pleasure in the mind. It's called Sukha. Definition. Sense object. Desired sense object and sense contact. Vishaya Indriya Sanyogaha. So desired sense object, what you like, and that comes in contact with your senses. That's Sukha. And there might be derivatives. It might not actually come in contact with your senses. You might think about it. That also can give you pleasure. So pleasure. What is Shanti? The cessation of all contacts. Pleasurable and painful. When you shut down the senses, you sit in meditation, or its closest natural equivalent is deep sleep. Imagine deep sleep, how much we like deep sleep. We may not like dreaming, we may not like a disturbed sleep, but everybody likes deep sleep. Everybody. What uh, pleasure is there? What variety is there in deep sleep? The least variety, no variety at all. What entertainment is there? Which beloved person is there in deep sleep? Even your most beloved body is also not there in deep sleep. What are your most pleasurable activities? What excitement is there in deep sleep? Absolutely none. That's the beauty of deep sleep. We like it. That is called Shanti. That is the natural form. But the actual the form in, in day-to-day life is the cessation of pleasure and pain is peace. The background of pleasure and pain when the senses and the objects do not come in contact. Imagine a state where no sight, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch. Pain, pleasure, nothing. Just calmness. Abiding there. That is called Shanti, peace. Then what is bliss? Beyond that, Ananda. Beyond that peace, you become aware of a presence. A devotee will become aware of God. Beyond that peace. It actually happens. 
And an inquirer on this path will become aware of the self which experiences that peace. In the deepest peace, if you could ask yourself, to what is this peace appearing? Then you will begin to get the inklings of ananda, of bliss. That's where peace becomes holy. Peace can be quietness. But there's a, in ananda there is holiness. In bliss there is holiness. This is a kind of sacredness about bliss. So ananda is, should not be confused with pleasure. Pleasure is far beyond. We have left it behind. Unless you go through peace, you can't come to ananda. Notice, the pathway to ananda, to bliss, lies through withdrawal from the world, sitting down in meditation, looking inward. Sukha dukkha have stopped. Shanti reigns. And beyond Shanti, deeper than Shanti, underlying Shanti is Ananda, bliss. And this applies in the path of devotion, this applies in this path, it applies in the path of um, meditation also. Okay. Yeah. Okay, we are done, we are done, I think. Just the next verse is... Interesting, I would, I'd like to mention it and go ahead. 20, or should we do it next time? 22. Let's mention it because it's in the same logic. Svabhavenam rito yasya Svabhavenam rito yasya Bhavo gachati matyatam Bhavo gachati matyatam Kritakenam ritasya katham Kritakenam ritasya katham Amritas. Oh, Amritas tasya, okay. Kritakenam ritas tasya katham Kritakenam ritas tasya katham Stasyati nishchalaha so, it says, suppose we accept the dualist's point of view. What does it say? Those in whose view the immortal can actually become mortal and then again tries to become immortal. In, the, in their view, when the immortal becomes mortal, when Atman or Brahman becomes this jiva, individual being, and then tries to recover that again, that is the dualistic approach. If the originally immortal could become mortal, then the Kritakena Amritam, the produced immortality, how long will it last? The artificial immortality. Kritakena Amritas Amritaha Tasya Katham Nishchala. How can that be stable? You were originally immortal, the original pure perfect nature. You lost it, fell from heaven or paradise. Now you're going to produce it again with God's help. How long will this artificial immortality last? So, so, even if you accept the dualist's point of view, it does not make sense. It, all the dualistic theories make sense if you regard non-dualism as the deeper meaning of the dualisms. All the dualistic theories are beautiful. You can practice any one of them and they will all lead you to this or they should. This is the claim made here. Otherwise, Shankaracharya says, what is the fault? In his, in his commentary, he says, Ataha Anir Moksha Prasanga. The possibility of moksha, liberation, nirvana, salvation, the solution to the problem of death, that will not be possible. 
from immortal, if you have really become mortal and you're trying to become immortal again, you can again become immortal. So moksha will not last. Moksha will be subject to date of expiry. <laughs> Consume before, best before <laughs> such and such date. The, the moksha also will become rotten afterwards then. And no. In no system, notice that any none of the dualistic systems, nobody says that salvation, um, immortality, moksha, nirvana, that is impermanent, nobody says. Everybody, everybody says that salvation has to be permanent. Overcoming of death means permanence, immortality. If that is so, and you put it with the earlier idea, intrinsic nature, then we must be that perfect reality right now. And the thing to be done is to realize that. And all these dualistic systems, practices of meditation, of uh, service, of worship, they're all good. They prepare us for this realization. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu you know, even a Buddhist who talks about the non-eternality, momentary nature of it, everything, sarvam kshanikam, everything is momentary, impermanent. So you ask, so nirvana, is that impermanent? <laughs> everything lasts for a moment. So you work very hard and, and follow the eightfold path and get nirvana, release. So will that last for a, for a, for a second? For a moment? So no, 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 not that. So there must be something which, even there they will say, they have to say, they, have, they will say that, no, no, that is also momentary. But momentary in what sense? They will say it's beyond time. Okay, that's a cop-out. <laughs> you mean that it is immortal. Beyond time means immortal. 